0: As we consider, yet again, the doctrine of the church this morning, particularly in the context of discipline, I'd like to encourage you to affirm that we're not encountering simply a biblical principle. But may we be like those who received the Gospels of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we recognize that we're not encountering, when we hear the Word of God, simply a principle or a doctrine Something that's written in black and white or heard. But we're encountering none other than the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is Jesus Christ who uh, proclaims his own authority. And we, we would be well advised were we to consider even the Gospels, the four Gospels of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be proclamations not merely of the Lord Jesus Christ but of the authority of that one who is rightly called Lord. Lord certainly has a very important aspect of authority in it. And so so I proclaim to you today that we're speaking about none other, uh, nor are we speaking any other week about none other than the Lord Jesus Christ in whose authority... The under-shepherds stand to proclaim his truths to you. The Lord Jesus Christ himself, the one who gave his life for the church, the one who is currently building and leading his church, the one who is guarding his church, the one who is purifying his church, the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he is not far away But he is near. He is where we live and breathe. This one didn't hang up the hat of being the captain of our salvation when he was resurrected from the dead and when he ascended into heaven. He did not diminish the power of the church which he built and proclaimed and maintains when... He went to heaven, leaving with us that very powerful Comforter, the Spirit of Christ. And so today I would like to draw your attention not merely to the passage of Scripture uh, here in Matthew chapter 18, but also really a summary of the entire context, if you will, of the doctrine of the church when trouble is in the church. And how we can follow the lead of the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of difficulty. And uh, there would be a number of heads for this, but I think it's particularly important for us to recognize that while we, those who have any inclination toward the importance of discipline in the church, and certainly those who embrace the principles, the biblical principles embraced in the Reformation, would understand that that, uh, that which was declared a church, those three marks of the church coming out of the Reformation uh, were the proclamation of the Word of God under the authority of Christ, the right disposition of the ordinances under the authority of Christ, and the discipline of the church under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we come out of that, we recognize often that we're inclined to simply view this as something that is summarized, in fact, in Matthew 18. But I would like to draw your attention today to recognize that Matthew 18 actually only considers one aspect of the necessity of discipline in the church, and that is for private offenses. And there are also declarations from our Lord Jesus Christ that have to do with public offenses as well. And so we'll be looking at both of those as uh, certainly one aspect of the head in which we would consider uh, how to follow the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ in trouble in the church. And as much as it grieves me to even consider the subject, the reality is, is it's a very important subject It's a very important subject because we're very happy to follow Christ. As John Bunyan says of one of his characters in Pilgrim's Progress, when she's in her silver slippers. But we're not so happy to follow Christ when our salvation is more difficult and the actions ...of our church are difficult, but nonetheless, these are things that are important for us. And so I would encourage you to consider them. You might also consider, and I'll be referencing beginning uh, as we look into this from our own confession, particularly in chapter 26 of our confession. You may or may not have noticed that chapter 26 of our confession is by far the longest chapter in all of our confession... It runs four pages in my copy, and that is a good bit more than any of the other sections. And that certainly, there's certainly a reason for that, no doubt, because that's the place we live. Were you to follow along in your confession with daily life, it's likely that chapter 26 would be that one that is dirtied by fingers touching it all the time. And so I'd like to draw your attention to a few things just as we look into this, the doctrine of the church, the leadership of Christ during trouble in the church. Regarding the London Baptist Confession in chapter 26, I'd like to draw your attention to a few things that Sam Waldron, who has an entire commentary on the confession, has said. In 26.5, he draws our attention to this idea of the originating mandate of the church the originating mandate of the church. In other words, what is it that uh, that mandates that we are a fellowship, that we come together? Who, who has done this? And of course, Jesus Christ is the originator of the local church. He's the living and powerful head of the church. Now, this is a very strong statement. Because we live in an evangelical culture where it isn't abnormal for people to say something like God told me this or God has led me here and so what happens often is this idea that we've actually kind of cheapened this idea of the authority of Christ when we say things that really imply uh, some sort of new revelation like the Lord has told me this and as a matter of fact even in the planting of churches It seems that often they appear to be so man-centered that it may very much give us the inclination to think that that man planted the church. As a matter of fact, if you look at the sinful state of the church today, you may say, Well, (laughs) yes, that certainly seems to be a mark that man planted this church because it is sinful. But I would draw your attention to the creation of this sin-stained world. The fact of the matter is the world is sin-stained, but it was also nonetheless created by a perfect almighty God who maintains it moment by moment. The reality is is that our very understanding of the church and of the Lord Jesus Christ is that he is intimately involved in the local congregation. The reality is that the scripture indicates to us that it is God... Who has called us particularly together in this place. And that he has also been intimately involved in the selection of leaders for our own fellowship. And that he works through those leaders. And this is a very, very important understanding. And if you were to reject that, then you would be rejecting the orthodox understanding of what it is that God is doing That he, in fact, is the one that is mandated, not the universal church merely, but the local church. This is a very important idea for us. Our entire understanding of the church, particularly important in difficulty, is that Christ has brought the local church together. And I would draw your attention now to something that I'll refer to later in Matthew chapter 16 verse 19 as well as Matthew chapter 18 here is this concept of the keys of the kingdom. And this certainly is an important idea for us and this is no less than the affirmation that Christ is behind this, that we follow him, that he is the authority yet even of our local fellowship and most certainly powerfully so. That's the originating mandate of the church, Jesus Christ, the originator. Secondly, Waldron brings up this idea, the substance of the mandate of Christ. The substance of the mandate. In other words, okay, so God has called us together as a church, what are we doing? We discussed that on the very first sermon in January. What are we doing? What are we doing? What has God called us to do here together? What are we, what are we doing? Are we, are we talking about the weather? Are we furthering our business uh, resume? Are we uh, tasting good food? What, what is it that we're doing here? What's the substance of the mandate of Christ? Certainly, we can enjoy those things, but we see that the central ministry of the local church toward believers is that they be built up in their obedience to all of the commands of Christ. That's simply what we're doing. It has to do with discipleship, with learning. And this is what... This is what the the substance of the mandate of Christ is. Ordinarily and normally, the teaching of disciples requires the existence of an officially recognized body of elders and teachers in the local church. Discipleship, baptism, the Lord's Supper are all directly connected to the Great Commission. Discipleship requires submission to the elders and teachers in the church. Church membership presupposes that discipleship will be central in the life of believers and will involve submission to the elders and teachers of the church as they involve themselves in being followers of Christ as under shepherds of his church. This This is central to what happens in a fellowship. It is teaching the word of God. And we've made We've made no excuses nor apologies for the fact that we're following that understanding of the Scriptures which aligns with the historic creeds and confessions of the Church, no less than the London Baptist Confession of 1689. Now, submission is a discipline of the heart for all believers to practice, not just wives or women. All Christians are called to submit to authority, first Peter two thirteen, to one another, Ephesians five twenty one, and to God, James four seven. But don't misunderstand what submission is and what it isn't. This word translated from the Greek word known as submission in our scriptures is something that's very important. Submission in the scriptures get ready for this is voluntary. It's voluntary. It's no less essential, but submission is always in the Scriptures voluntary. Now that's a very important idea. When, when submission is not voluntary, it's no longer biblical submission. Forcing someone to do something is not biblical submission. Submission in the Scriptures cannot be forced if it isn't voluntary, it isn't biblical Submission. It's a position that we take when we're motivated by our love for Christ and our desire to please and obey Him. Even our own doctrine of irresistible grace, which involves submission to the saving grace of Christ and repentance and faith, is not forced. It is not something that we do unwillingly. The reality is, is the way that Christ works in our lives is that He persuades our will to love Him. And then we follow him. No one comes to Christ savingly against their will. We freely come. We long to come. We want to come. That is submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, that is an important idea in the fellowship of any church. So while submission to Christ's doctrine and authority is absolutely voluntary, it's also, as I said, absolutely essential there's significant breadth and doctrinal understandings which are within our confession of faith. There's much breadth in our confession. The reality is this: we're not all the same. We're not all going to be the same. As a matter of fact, there are some significant distinctions even in some of our own understandings of the scriptures. That's okay. That's okay. But there is certainly a unity, there's a commonality uh, under the confession here that of course must be central to what it is that we do. While we rightly rejoice in the sweet body life of our fellowship, we have experienced and will continue to experience the biblical principle recorded in Amos 3.3, shall two walk together except they have agreed. It's not as if in a local body there are some who submit to Christ's doctrine as taught by the churches God called teachers, and there are those who don't. A church is defined as those who live in harmony under Christ's teaching. That's the definition of a church, is that we walk together in harmony with Christ's teaching. The very bane of existence in the days of the judges was that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The local church of Jesus Christ is not an organization where everyone does what is right in his own eyes. It's an organize, organization ruled by Christ, and the Lord has determined that his bride will not be trifled with. As he has reminded us in the very same context of these keys of the kingdom granted to Christ's servants in Matthew sixteen eighteen. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, so much for the introduction. Let's consider now Matthew 18. I draw your attention now, beginning in verse 15. This guidance is categorically for private offenses. It seems appropriate to profess at this point that many offenses in our experience begin privately. But unless carefully guarded and contained as admonished in this passage, they become public by that which is typically in the category of slander and gossip. Christ calls his disciples to forgive one another, but he calls them to do it in such a way as to correct their faults. And this is what Matthew 18 draws us to here. I'll have a few quotes from Calvin. Here's one of them. Almost all lean to one side or the other, either to deceive themselves mutually by deadly flatteries or to pursue with excessive bitterness those whom they ought to cure. End quote. To be unclear... To lack biblical charges, to wrangle over issues, or flatter one another by not requiring men to own their sin is not dealing rightly with Christ's church and leads to ambiguous outcomes and ultimately becomes a mockery of Christ's authority over his church. I quote Calvin again, As the greater part of men are driven by ambition to publish with excessive eagerness the faults of their brethren, Christ seasonably meets this fault, by enjoining us to cover the faults of brethren as far as lies in our power. For those who take pleasure in the disgrace and infamy of brethren are unquestionably carried away by hatred and malice, since if they were under the influence of charity, they would endeavor to prevent the shame of their brethren." End quote. Again, from Calvin, Christ does not simply and without exception order us to advise or reprove privately and in the absence of witnesses, all who have been offended, but bids us attempt this method when we have been offended in private, by which is meant not that it is a business of our own, but that we ought to be wounded and grieved whenever God is offended. End quote. Calvin has obviously experientially understood exactly the case in Matthew 18 and the difficulties that churches encounter. Matthew 18 is a passage of scripture that leads through dealing with private offenses in such a way as they are contained in as small a circle as possible. Once they become public... It's important for us to recognize that we are no longer navigating from the chart of Matthew 18. We've stepped onto another, if you will, navigational aid. So we look here at 1815, if your brother sins against you. Now again, this is important language here. Uh, The you here. Is not to denote an injury committed against anyone, but to distinguish again between secret and open sins against you individually. A distinction between secret sins, Matthew 18, and open sins. Other passages, perhaps 1 Corinthians 5 or Titus chapter 3. Or in First Timothy 5:20, for instance, if anyone offends against the whole church, Paul calls for public reproval, so that even elders shall not be spared. And it is in reference to elders that Paul lays down the admonition in First Timothy 5:20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that they may, re- so that the rest may stand in fear in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. I charge you to keep these rules without. Prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Again, I quote Calvin, and it certainly would be absurd that he who has committed a public offense so that the disgrace is generally known should be admonished by individuals. Continuing in Matthew 18, verse 15 If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The doctrine is confirmed by its usefulness. It's no small matter for God to gain a soul, which had been the slave of Satan. Those who have fallen often do not repent. And one reason is because they're regarded with hatred and treated as enemies, and so they become hardened. This is a very important idea for us. And we need to recognize that we're, we're not merely talking about hospitably living together. Matthew 18 is written in the context of being lost or saved. It's saving a soul from hell. This is the idea, because if they continue in the activity that this private offense uh, initiated in the church, then the understanding is that there is in fact concern over their eternal destiny. And so it's very important for us to get this right. It's very important for us to exercise, as the scriptures would say, meekness. Meekness is very important. Meekness, children, a picture of meekness uh, would be uh, what I like to think of as a, a powerful workhorse. Under control. You hitch him up to a giant log, and he pulls it effortlessly. That's meekness. It's power under control. And that's what God calls us to here when we go to our brother if he sins against us. On the other hand, to flatter others and not bring private reproof places the brother's salvation in jeopardy. And so Christ calls us to be satisfied with private reproof. If the brother would be bought, brought to repentance, the hope is that the private reproof would accomplish that. So we might, should ask ourselves the question, have we anticipated that someone might come to us with a concern over an offense? Are you even approachable? Can someone even come to you? Do you? Uh, the reality is, is that, that, like it or not, we, we all have a certain aura about us that, that either looks kind of like a green light, a yellow light, or a red light. <laughs> and you red light folks, the fact that you haven't heard anything, don't take that as an indication that you're like perfect or something. It just means that you're unapproachable. It means that unfortunately, because others are uncertain about their ability to approach you, that you will languish in your private offenses. But God calls us to meekness. And he calls us to transparency. And he calls us to be those people who are rightly approachable. When our brother or our sister comes to us, do we have a heart that's soft enough to at least consider what it is they're saying? Now, the reality is is it may be that we've never experienced that. But the Lord Jesus Christ, by implication in Matthew 18 here, is if the Proverbs are correct and that rebuke is the way of life, then it's going to be something that is rather common, but also something that is quite contained. You'll never hear about it when someone else does it. Why? Because they did it right. That's the idea here with this first step. Christ calls us to be satisfied with private reproof if the brother be bought, brought to repentance. Secondly, we see the admonition here in verse 16 if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. to add weight to the admonition. The idea here isn't necessarily that they've seen the offense, but that the offense is of such gravity that uh, there would be a continuation, a beckoning to the offender that he might repent. And it should come to our minds an appropriate question. If my brother won't hear me and rejects what it is that I'm saying, Is the situation of such gravity that I feel the need to call two others to go with me? It may be that when it goes to that level, you would decide that love would cover it. But it also may be, if it is of such a degree, that you would bring them with you. And this is the place where much breaks down. And true colors are shown. Whether there'll be a commitment to Christ and the authority of Christ in the church or whether there'll be a commitment to oneself and self-sovereignty. Now I would like to introduce to you the Corinthians and the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was a church that the Apostle Paul was used of God to begin, and it is a church that the Apostle Paul wrote very unique letters to. If you look at all the letters to the churches, it won't take you long to recognize that the Corinthian church was, shall we say, a trouble child in the church planting world. And so, they had much to contend with. The Corinthian church was a, a city that was known for debauchery. It was a Greek, it was a Greek uh, area, of course, and they lived in abject debauchery. And the Apostle Paul was used of the Lord to start a church there. And the Corinthians had a party spirit. They had a party spirit. Now... The fact that the Corinthians had a party spirit, I don't want you to get the idea that what that means is a lot of people are sitting around with Dixie cups and beer in their hands, listening to loud music. That's not what the Apostle Paul is talking about with the party spirit. What he's talking about is a political campaign, basically, in which certain people contend for one individual or one way of thinking, and other people contend for another way of thinking, and perhaps there are more groups than that, but nonetheless, they had this inclination Uh, to try to gain adherence to their own understanding, to their own destruction. While they didn't recognize, certainly, that individual teachers that came into the Corinthian church were different, but yet there were obviously similarities with those teachers that were sound, and they decided to think of it in different terms. Again, they did have a history of debauchery, And this practice has become so common, it seems to have become appropriate. Bunyan brings this up in Pilgrim's Progress. He, he talks about custom. And the reality is, is that we can do things for so long that they become custom, and it, it's as if it's appropriate. It's as if it's the law now. When we get to this second step, In Matthew chapter 18, often what happens is this party spirit. It is so customary in fellowships that it seems as if this is the way forward. This is what the scriptures say. But we certainly reject that completely. Completely. A primer on slander. Slander is the sharing of speculation and hearsay about someone that results in a negative depiction of another person and a decline in their reputation. This is a, a quote from Josh Bice. He is the author of the article that I sent most of you. Sharing of hearsay or slander involves speaking and listening or writing and reading. Make no mistake, you involve yourself in slander when you listen to negative depictions of others. The moment a report becomes negative, you should refuse to listen and reprove the speaker. Now, I recognize... And I'm not trying to be comical here, that this would dramatically change the communication patterns of many people if they refuse to listen to negative reports. And again, this has become so very common to us. So very common to us. I'd like to give to you an example that will likely and I hope will never leave your minds. I want you to go with me, if you would, to a very tall mountain with the wind blowing. Would you go with me there? And I want for you to take a feather pillow with you. So, children, there we are, strangely enough, on the top of a mountain with a feather pillow. This one happens to have a zipper on it. What I want you to do right now is I want you to unzip the zipper, and I want you to let all the feathers out. Can you do that for me? Okay, now what's just happened? That's slander. Now what I want you to do is confess your sin and get all the feathers and put them back in the pillow. If we refuse and reject slander and gossip, the way that we speak will potentially dramatically change. Matthew chapter 18 breaks completely down when we break the small circle of that private offense. verse 17 if he refuses to listen to them tell it to the church tell it to the church now when Paul mentions the incestuous Corinthian He intends the whole assembly. On the other hand, we recognize that in the day that Christ wrote this, the synagogue elders had the power of excommunication. Church here refers to a local body of believers. Telling the church may refer to the leaders of the church who may in turn request prayer, perhaps a few others to assist in adjudication, ultimately will require church action. This is one of the places where Baptists rightly understand the ecclesiology of a local body and that is the authority of the individual church to bring in, if you will, citizens of the church and also to expel them from the church. While all Bible students don't agree on the precise ramifications of telling the church, we can be certain that the intent isn't to deputize every member of the church to become an investigating officer such that they are due every detail of information such that a personal decision can be made aside from the trusting relationship the congregation has with her leaders under Christ. Further, this certainly is not a license nor an exhortation to broadcast statements regarding negative depictions of others ...to those outside of the local congregation as if it was the duty to warn the church universal. And further, that those other than the local church has authority or jurisdiction over other local churches. There are doctrinal missteps that are not so consequential, but this one. Authorizing slander and calling it telling the church... Brings us back to the seven things the Lord hates in Proverbs chapter 6. Now again, even for people that embrace the rightness of church discipline, coming out of the biblical look at the Reformation, even those people, as we are fixated on the process of Matthew 18, may be Inclined to think, and it is likely that we're thinking a little bit off of what the scriptures reveal. Let us be clear. An undirected public discussion about an accusation of sin within a congregation is categorically not adjudicating nor searching out a matter in order to determine guilt or innocence or the biblically directed course of action in the case of guilt or innocence. To search out a matter, come to a conclusion in harmony with the Word of God, and make recommendations to the congregation is the work of God-ordained leaders in a congregation. To think that the adjudication of something so serious as even a private offense... To think that an undirected public investigation would bring about the appropriate biblical adjudication of that is nothing less than expecting for evolution to build an F-35. It's not going to happen. And that's not what Matthew chapter 18 is directing us to do. And so it's important for us to understand that. Yes, there will be questions in situations of admonitions particularly when the church is brought into it at the very last step, last step. But nonetheless, it's very important for us to recognize that decisions that a congregation makes in this case will never be divorced from a trusting relationship in their elders. And so that's, that's a very important idea that, again, we should understand here. I expect that this is one of the reasons... That leadership can be so lonely. To act decisively without spreading negative statements unnecessarily among the church is very burdensome. And it's doubtless why the Apostle Paul states in 2 Corinthians 11 these words. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, and often without food and cold and exposure." And he ends there. Actually, he doesn't. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. My anxiety for all the churches. What, I pray tell, is the Apostle Paul speaking about there. Perhaps writing letters like First and 2 Corinthians. Perhaps dealing with the messiness of of situations in the church, and so forth, and so on. Verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. It's a common passage. It's likely that you have referred to that passage time and time again. And it is also very likely in your past that you never recognized or affirmed that the context of that promise is the context of church discipline. It's the context of church discipline. Now, I am not implying uh, that this promise will be ineffective outside of the context of church discipline. But nonetheless, it's important for us to see that the Lord of the church has made promises regarding insight and wisdom in the case of church discipline. I draw again your attention to the phrase, whatever you bind on earth. This is a repeat of Matthew chapter 16 in verse 19. When he's talking to Peter, after Peter confesses the Lord as Christ, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is a different sense. In 1619, it had to do with the authority of the doctrine they preached, but here it had to do with the discipline in the church. In 1619, the declaration was in the preaching of the gospel and that it would not be without effect, as in 2 Corinthians 2. The Apostle says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity as commissioned by God in the sight of God we speak in Christ. Apparently, one time Spurgeon asked one of his pastors in Pastor's College, "When you proclaim the gospel, do you expect people to come to faith?" And they said, "No, not always." And he said, "There's your problem." <laughs> Look at the promise in 2 Corinthians. When you proclaim the gospel, you should expect for the Lord to work. These are the keys of the kingdom that it will not be ineffectual, that the proclamation of the Word of God will have its power and applied in the lives of men and women, of boys and girls. But here in Matthew chapter 18, what the Lord of the church is saying is that this promise is also true, not only in the proclamation of God's doctrine, but also in the situation of church discipline. Here he affirms that while wicked men may ridicule the judgment of the church, it will not be ineffectual. We should make note that the one who had to do with the preached word and here to the public censures and discipline. Here's the sense of the matter of binding and loosing. If a person who commits a sin humbly confesses his fault and asks the church to forgive him, this one will be absolved not only by men but also by God himself. On the other hand, whoever mocks the reproofs and threatenings of the church, if he is condemned by her, the decision which faithful men have given, as in harmony with the judgment of God revealed in his word, will be ratified in heaven. When Christ maintains the authority of his church, he does not diminish its power. Where is Christ right now? This kind of works in our minds a little bit, children. When mom is away, you think that you can get away with stuff that you couldn't get away with when she's here. Is that true? Now, hopefully I didn't just introduce you to an idea. Christ is on his throne. Does it seem that he's too far away? to express his authority over the local congregation because it may be that we think of it in those terms. He didn't diminish his power when he ascended into heaven. The commendation again in Matthew 16:19 was not for every kind of doctrine, but only that which is consistent with Christ. And so here in Matthew 18, men who are consistent with the word of God regarding the adjudication of a matter in the church will certainly rightly lay claim to the authority of God in that matter. Back to verse 17. If he refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The idea here is simply that this one appears to be unholy, irreclaimable, and that we ought to have no intercourse with them until they repent. Now, as mentioned in the introduction to the main passage at hand, the directions given in Matthew 18 regarding church discipline lead churches into a carefully guarded containment process, whereby the unsavory aspects are to remain in as small a circle as possible. Now, what would be one reason for that? Well, not least of which is that it isn't anyone else's business. But secondly, the reality is is that every accusation isn't accurate. It may not even be true. And so there is this right idea of the containment. It is for personal offenses and has primarily two goals. The first goal, repentance and restoration. The second goal, the maintenance of purity in the local church. The scriptures also have directions for issues that become public, either through a mishandling of what was initially private or through issues that began as public issues. Now, forgive me for a navigational illustration that I've already alluded to. Unless you're going somewhere where you can actually see the destination. In other words, I'm walking to the tower that I can see. If that is the case, then it doesn't actually matter that I know where I am. What really matters is that I continue to keep my eye on the tower that I'm walking to. Do you understand? However, most of our situations where we're trying to navigate have to do with places that we cannot see. And when you're going to a place that you cannot see, the most important thing about your navigational process isn't actually where you're going. It's where you are. Where am I right now? If you're to go try to navigate on a Navy ship, for instance, you will notice that there are great pains taken to make sure that we know where the ship is right now. Because we know where we're going. We can point to it on a chart. But if we have no idea where we are, then we have no idea which direction to go to get to our destination. And so this is very, very important for us as we look at, again, this concept of church discipline and how to handle it. If we're trying to deal with a public offense out of Matthew 18, we have come to the point where we don't actually know where we are in order for us to navigate properly and get to the bright end that God intends for us to be, we've got to figure out where we are. And then at that point, we can get to where God is calling us to be. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is dealing with a very grievous sin in the Corinthian church. And they were commending themselves for tolerating the sin and allowing the sinful individual to remain in the church. 1 Corinthians 5, chapter 5, verses 2 through 6. The Bible says this, And you were arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Make note, this isn't the church condemning a person to hell. It is acknowledgment that the Lord can deal with the destruction of their flesh such that they may be yet redeemed. Sexual sins so common to the Corinthians, they downplayed and tolerated that which should be condemned. Slander is in the same category in the contemporary church. Slander and gossip are so common, so common, that we don't consider them to be the grievous sin that they are. And that's precisely what the Apostle Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 5. If the Corinthian church, or if the city of Corinth was known for anything, anything at all, it was sexual debauchery. And so they, the reality is, is they didn't understand the grievous nature of sexual sin. And so they actually considered themselves merciful and tolerant of that which seemed so common to them. And the Apostle Paul, just like Puddleglum did in C.S. Lewis's work, stamped out the fire that seemed to be putting them to sleep and woke them up. You can't tolerate this kind of sin in the church. And the same is true in our own situation, in our own culture, I should say. And that is of slander and gossip. It is so commonplace that we don't consider it as grievous as it is. And one other passage that I'll point out in Titus chapter 3, when the Apostle Paul is giving instructions... To Pastor Titus, listen to his directions regarding those who are divisive. Titus 3, 10 and 11. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. This is the Apostle Paul's writing to Titus. So again, here in 1 Corinthians 5, in Titus chapter 3, what we have is public offenses. And it's important for us to recognize that the navigational trail, I should say the process of traveling from the advent of the public offense to the biblical completion of that is a very short trip. It's much shorter than the Matthew 18 trip for private offenses. Biblically dealing with private offenses when kept private again can plod along slowly to a hopeful end. Egregious public offenses are dealt with far more quickly and publicly with the emphasis being purging and warning. And so the Apostle brings us to this understanding. So as we look at the words of Christ, we also look at the authority of Christ reflected in the Apostle Paul's writings. It's important for us to see that the Lord of the Church is still on his throne. And that if we are the organization that God has called us to, then obviously He has called us to understand that we can only enjoy the sweetness of a fellowship. We can only enjoy the growing relationships with one another and with the Lord Jesus Christ. We can only grow in grace in the context of obeying the Master of the Church. And may we be those people who follow Him. And enjoy those sweet benefits. Let us pray.